0: This recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. My reaction to the uh, Gary Hart debacle, (laughs) Uh,
1: my response
0: has been consistently the same, that it's nice to have sex out of the pulpit and back in politics where it belongs. Sin of hubris and unawareness. The greatest sin is unawareness. As he was unaware of his own vulnerability. He is now aware of his vulnerability, so uh, he's begun his journey to hold it. He has a wonderful opportunity to grow up. And My prayers are for him that... Uh, that he will seize this opportunity to become a person and not a cardboard character uh, that is overinflated uh, with his transitory importance. Here ends the lesson. (laughs) (laughs) An entire generation of Episcopal priests cut their theological teeth on the systematic theology of Professor John McQuarrie. In 1965, I believe, he published through Scribner's a book entitled Principles of Christian Theology, which became the primary text for systemi- systematic theology in the majority of the Episcopal Seminaries. His uh, seminal statement on Contemporary systematic theology has trained most of the Episcopal priests who are now uh, in the vineyards uh, trying to interpret a classical theology in a practical way to people who are not asking great overriding philosophical theological questions or asking what it was that Athanasius uh, had to say, but are trying to interpret uh, the dailiness of their own life. Professor McQuarrie, though, has become one of those kind of heroes in my own theological journey, as I think I told you a month or so ago, when I was invited to do the Harvey lectures at the Seminary of the Southwest this year, which is a uh, was a double pleasure for me. The first one being <clears throat> I enjoy lecturing, and the second being that for a seminary to invite uh, parish priests into the academy is always uh, enlightening for the seminary and threatening for the speaker. <laughs> In that lecture, <clears throat> I quoted uh, Professor Macquarie because I had done, as many of you know, a series of lectures here based on Macquarie's book, In Search of Humanity. Uh, and as the dean of the seminary picked me up and took me to dinner and we were walking into the narthex of the chapel at the seminary, he said, oh by the way, and I told you that Professor Macquarie is in residence here this spring. <laughs> two concurrent feelings, both of which I was able to hold consciously. (laughs) One had to do with an image that I was sleeping and dreaming about the lectures, and was somehow going to be awakened and saying that Professor McCoy was not really there, it's one of those threatening dreams that Jung prophesied that one who took himself too seriously would have. The second feeling was praising God that I have given credit in my
1: lectures to Doctor
0: Macquarie for the quotations from from him. And so there I began this series of lectures with the famous. John A. Macquarie, Lady Margaret, Professor of Theology at Oxford, uh, the mentor of a generation of Episcopal clergy. uh, In my first lectures in the academy, and there he sat and a rather long quotation from him. He stayed for for the balance of the lectures, which went over a two-day period. And following those, he came up to me and uh, said, uh, He's kind of a Scottish brogue, he is a Scotsman. Uh, he said, Dean McGeehy, I find a very little disagreement with what you say.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: to which I responded, there's got to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I've been asked by uh, the Episcopal Radio and TV Foundation in a kind of circuitous manner to interview Dr. Macquarie. in Austin in the morning interviewing him, and we take uh, videotape. Distribution throughout the church for an adult education series where uh, the dean of the cathedral interviews <coughs> Dr. Macquarie on uh, his theology. And so I've been pouring back through principles of Christian theology in the balance of the weekend preparing for an interviewing And in so doing, <coughs> it brought me back to my own credo. And for those of you who don't know, seminarians are required in their middle year in systematic theology to write their own credo, and that is what I believe. And so you have to write it in a systematic theology, which is to say that you develop your own theological system. Um, Remembering that I wrote my credo uh, in 1967. Uh, The Flower Children were in Berkeley, Resurrection City was in Washington. Uh, Bobby Kennedy was running for president. And Martin Luther King was changing the social history of America. And so, in spite of all of that influence, as I reread my credo, I found that it still held up. And that is to say that my theology has not significantly changed in its framework from those days. Now, that is either a compliment to my incredible, precocious brilliance at age 24, or it may be that my theology has not changed since I was in the fifth grade. Karl Barth, the great continental theologian, probably the best-known worldwide contemporary theologian, the founder of what's known as Neo-Orthodoxy, as most of you know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> when
0: Dr. Bart was asked to, to give his Summa Theologica, his, his essence of his own theology, he said that after all of his study, that what he believed was theologically true was, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me. My Trinitarian formula and my credo went as follows. That God, the creator or parent or father in those days, <laughs> was the giver of possibilities. Jesus was the Christ because he represented the possibility. The Holy Spirit was the continuing witness. Of possibility. What we have been bequeathed in creation in general and our creaturehood in particular is possibility. I think the unconscious question of the child that exits the birth canal is twofold. One is, what matters, and the second is what's possible. The matter question is the animal nature of human beings in this sense. Marion Woodman uh, quoted here before in a book entitled Addiction to Perfection, who has done, I think, definitive work on analyzing Dietary disorders, it says that the word matter is from the same root as maker or mother. And that what we seek in our dietary disorders, uh, which includes eating too much or drinking too much, or withholding nourishment from ourselves, is in some way related to our relationship with our mother. The desire to reconcile either uh, too much nurture or not enough. And then of course the maturity of the
1: journey to wholeness is a time at which
0: uh, you let your biological mother off the hook and allow her to be a human being and look elsewhere for your nurture and what matters. So the first question asked is what matters and what matters to the human being at that moment is a meal. And we never can't quite get over the fact that that's what matters. And any time we as human beings begin to perceive that our physical existence, that our very uh, existential reality of being human doesn't matter, then we're less than human. You heard me speak before about truth for the hungry comes in the form of bread. And the kind of condescending uh, judgment that people who are full think about those who are hungry uh, don't know what matters. And it matters very much for human beings to have our basic physical needs met. What matters is to have some basic human needs met. We assume a sort of chauvinism about most of the world has their physical needs met because we do. Hunger is not not terribly important to those people who are not hungry. And so there is something about what matters to a child who comes from the birth canal asking, what is my matter, what matters here, what is And my material needs must be met. It is a very mature understanding of life to take physical, somatic existence with utmost seriousness my own physical health, and my own physical needs, and the material that is necessary to meet them. Like everything else, it has its dark side, and that is uh, this kind of need. (coughs) If we assume that it has meaning beyond itself, except as metaphor, then we're in trouble, because then we begin to worship material things as if they held power for meaning. And that's a a subtle but very important theological twist in the journey to wholeness when you realize the point of diminishing returns of the acquisition of what matters. Be it literal material goods or the power that comes from the material goods. It becomes a limit to the meaning that they bring there is a satiation point, a point of diminishing returns for the acquisition of what matters. So, as everything, it has its light and dark side, and that is that we can't speculate about possibility until we meet the minimum requirements of our own physical needs. But then we need to look beyond what matters to what is possible for us. God is the giver of possibility. One of the roles I think of the shaman or the witch doctor or the holy one, the wise one, the counselor, the wounded healer, one of the primary functions of the one who works with another is to give that person a perspective. (coughs) That is to say that in, in the microscopic view of what it means to be human, somebody needs to give a macroscopic view. That is in the narrow issue of whatever it is that has got you bound up at this point, in that narrowing of the issue. Now, usually the reason sick people need others is because they can't think of anything but their sickness. Why hungry people need food is because... Why cold people need warmth is because they can't think of anything but their coldness. That somebody needs to give them a perspective greater than that. And that is to talk about the possibilities. Out of the narrowing of what matters, we need to see that more is possible. And those things on which we have built most of our houses ultimately are sand because they will be washed away. All material ends. Everything on which we built our houses. We'll all wash away. As my wife says about dieting, I don't know why we do it, we all get skinny in the
1: end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> what matters matters, but there's meaning beyond material the church or theology or love needs to go to those who think they know what matters and it matters so much they're frozen and raise the question of what else is possible God has given us possibilities my mind when I think about that races to all the things that are not possible for me Expressed desire that was irrepressible that I become a concert pianist. It was impossible. <laughs> Doctor Hallway, the choir ordnance at Christ Cathedral, has a desire for me to sing the Holy. God may be the giver of possibility. But I consider it the most egocentric and damaging sin for me to interrupt public worship with my singing. There are certain things for us in the material sense of what we can do with our bodies or with our minds or with our lives that we need to be very mature about, and that is the human limitation. That in history, in a sphere of history, there are certain things that are impossible for us. Impossible for me to be in two places at the same time. It's impossible for you to know me apart from my body. My body is very limiting. It limits me to time and space. There are certain things about being human that we need to be very aware of, that it matters that we know the limitation of material. That certain things on a level of humanity that we need to be very wise and mature about, and that is our human limitation those kinds of boundaries and limits that are imposed on each individual, while at the same time to consider the wild possibilities where there are no boundaries or barriers that are possible for each of us. Is there a limit on your love? What are the limits on your love? God is the giver of possibility. It seems to me that in the non-material sense of what it means to love, that we are without limit. Yes, I know, what about the human limitations on love where our own selfishness, our own selfish desire uh, prohibits us from loving another who does not love us? When the most difficult, if not impossible things for human beings to do is to love one or even to allow another to love you without returning the love to them. It's very difficult for human beings to allow somebody to love them without returning the love. We always work on some kind of quota system, some kind of volume system, and that is that I must love you as much as you love me as if there is some quantitative evaluation of that. And even if there isn't a quantitative evaluation, if I love you uh, on a scale of one to 10, if I love you a nine, I've got to have a one back from you, at least a one. The opposite of love for human beings is not hate, it's apathy. When somebody comes in and says, I hate so-and-so and he is a so-and-so, and then we begin to work because this person has very strong feelings that happen to be negative. And somebody says, I don't care about some. So it's very difficult to create a relationship when that's after. Well, so what about the limits on human love? Should we not be aware of those? Yes, very aware. But we also ought to be aware of the incredible possibilities for one who is able to see from the giver of possibility, God, the representation of that possibility in Jesus of Nazareth, where he says, you must love one another. The disciples say, well, how are we supposed to love one another? And he says, as I have loved you. <clears throat> that is without condition. The well, Pittman is incapable of loving without condition, but I can love one as Christ loves them. That's a new possibility. It is, to my best guess, a relatively uh, undiscovered possibility. (coughs) Human beings love one another as Christ loves them. Without condition. Consider that as a new possibility, that Jesus Christ represents the possibility for authentic existence. One of the things, and I would commend to, when you discover what matters so much that you can't move because you're frozen with how much it matters, to be given the gift of a theology that says God is a giver of new possibilities, and being very aware of what matters and what the material is that has bound you up or hemmed you in or locked you up, paralyzed you, made you frozen, would you consider that God has given possibilities that you have not dreamed yet? Even with the risk found in something as sentimental as the man of La Mancha when we echo that we could dream the impossible dream. Somebody needs to come to the person who's frozen with something that matters so much they're not able to think of anything else, and they have come to some kind of end in which they've created a crisis, which is a turning point, and somebody needs to give a perspective and say, have you considered this as a possibility? It's more than problem-solving. It's a (laughs) theological evangelizing without having to be labeled that.
1: You don't have to become a street corner preacher or a Bible-beaten
0: Christian in order to witness to God by simply lifting up with one who's hemmed in with something that matters so much they can think of nothing else. You consider it another possibility. Now, the representation of the new possibility is Jesus of Nazareth. And if you read with any critical eye the motif of what it is that Jesus of Nazareth represents, it is that he is a representative of unconditional love and unlimited possibility. Paul knew that from his own experience and taught most profoundly about the fact that nothing matters except a relationship with God. All of these things that matter so much to us, our bodies, our relationships, our careers, our success, our failure, our power, our impotence, all those things matter so much. We've invested so much in what matters. And there's only one thing that matters. And that is the relationship with the one who gave us our life in the beginning. And that the giver of possibility does not abandon us with all the limitations in our humanity, but offers us continuing new possibility. Paul says that he's persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities, nor heights nor depth nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has given the possibility. Jesus of Nazareth represents or (coughs) re-presents the possibility for authentic existence now and forever. So what matters? All of the failures.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Have you considered the possibility that your failures were the beginnings of your health? Have you ever considered the possibility that this wall that you hit mattered so much that you couldn't get over or around or under? It was a time at which you began to look at greater things. Have you ever considered the fact that that failed relationship was what prepared you for your ultimate relationship? Have you ever considered the possibility that your physical illness was a time that your spirit began to get healthy? Uh, I would contend that it's the job of the church not to judge you in your failures, uh, to point the long finger of blame at you by saying you must have done something wrong for which you're being punished. But it's the job of the church to say, have you ever considered this
1: possibility?
0: <clears throat> it is the continuing witness called the Holy Spirit that witnesses always and again to the new possibility. God as giver of possibility and could be interpreted as the, the great watchkeeper who's wound the watch and let it loose. That's called deism. America was founded by many Many people who founded America were deists, thought that God had just set the clock and was going to let it run. That's not our position. We do believe God is the giver of possibility, and allows freedom, inhibiting God's self, and ultimately to allow us to have some freedom about decision-making. But never withdraws the possibility. And that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is a Christ because he represents the possibility for authentic human existence. That it is possible to be an authentic, full, healthy human being. It is possible. And it's possible without being able to play the piano or sing the mass. It is possible, even though you have not been the best possible husband or wife, or parent or child. It is possible, even though you haven't been perfect, that you can be whole. It is through your imperfection that your wholeness begins, and an awareness of it. <clears throat> so when Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, first of all, he got down in the dirt, if you remember, because that's what we all come out of. And then he said to those who were willing to stone her, you who are without sin, cast the first stone, and not one stone has yet been tossed. And then he said to her, in a rough paraphrase, I hope you learned something here. You don't have to do this again you have been given new possibilities. Go and send them more. I would put just a postscript on that, and that the whole motif is, uh, but even if you make a mistake again, you'll still come back. Jesus Christ represents the possibility for authentic existence at every moment, at every turning point. At every crisis and transition, at every wall, Christ represents the new Genesis. And that is, you can be totally recreated over again. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who who continually witnesses to that possibility. We see it in nature, we see it in everything that's broken, we see it in life cycle and day cycle. We see it in the daylily and the evergreen. We see the Holy Spirit witnessing to the fact that there are always new possibilities that we can begin again, no matter what the end. Now, the theology of the church, I believe, is to offer to us not judgment. I think. I'm convinced that there's enough of that. What the world needs now is new possibilities. To judge, I think life judges us by our own limitations and our own vulnerability, and the gap between what we want to be versus what we are. The gap is called guilt. And there seems to be enough of that. Thank you very much. You don't need to make me feel guilty. I've done a sufficient job of that on my own. And I have no desire to make you feel guilty. It seems to me that nature takes care of that. Guilt seems to be a universal feeling. I've never, ever had to describe to anybody what guilt feels like. like the taste of water. Everybody knows it. Guilt is not what the church is in the business to impose. (coughs) The church is in the business to relieve. To say, I know you must be in a dark place, but have you ever considered the possibility? God has given you possibilities. Jesus and Nazareth have represented the possibility, and the Holy Spirit continually witnesses to it. And the nice thing about human beings on their journey is, I get phone calls regularly from people saying, did you know so-and-so is doing so-and-so? He's drinking too much or he's running around or he's not coming to church or whatever, and you ought to go do something about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Number one, I, I can't meet the needs of those who have asked me to meet their needs, much less those who have. not And the other thing is that, as I have viewed life and as God has given me a clear message through Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit, that there's plenty of time. And that there are always new possibilities for them, and that they can begin again at any time. But I'm just not as anxious about that as I used to be. And the other thing that's very nice and comforting about all that is that, in spite of the fact that I'm a priest, uh, a big deal dean of a cathedral,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, God is still alive and has not died and bequeathed the universe to me. <laughs> send a message to those people that when they hit their wall and they surely will everybody does that's how you find out what matters and you'll find out that what you thought mattered does and that's the beginning of a very graceful period a painful but <coughs> graceful period of discovering what matters now when they hit the wall then they will ask somebody and that person will be Jesus Christ for them. They'll ask somebody, what do I mean?" And that person will say, have you ever considered the possibility? I'm a Christian because that's what Christianity has done for me. I'm a priest because that's what the church did for me. The church is not perfect. It's founded upon Peter, one of the most imperfect people in all of the New Testament. The rock of the church, the holder of the keys to the kingdom, was one who denied that he even knew who Jesus was. The church is not perfect. Never was set out to be perfect. One of my mentors says, The church is a prostitute, but she's my mother. Church taught me that it was okay for me to be me, and I had unlimited possibilities. And one of them was to become more than a piano player. I'm a Christian because God has given me possibility and represented that possibility for authentic existence in Jesus of Nazareth and continues to remind me of that in the witness of the Spirit that has never died and will never, where is the That's my credo, that's what I believe. I think I believed it in the fifth grade when I was a middler in seminary in the But I, I'm not sure i always believe that. Because God may just reveal something new. Because when I hit my wall, in the past when I've hit my walls, and in the future when I hit them, I'll be looking for a new possibilities. And I pray, literally pray, one of you here might come to me and say, have any of you ever considered the possibilities? And if you'll do that, you'll be Jesus... Nazareth, and just as much a priest, just as much an evangelist, just as religious, as any person ever ordered. That's what matters.